WHYY and BillyPenn.com. It is hitting season. I'm your host, John Stolness from The Good Fight and BillyPenn.com. You can follow me on Twitter at John Stolness. Coming up, we're going to talk about the All Star game. Some Phillies played a prominent role, and uh, we'll talk about Nick Castellanos, Craig Kimbrell, and Philly Rob did getting the National League off the Schneid. We'll get into some of the Nolan Arenado trade rumors that are out there right now. Does that make a whole lot of sense? We'll talk a little Andrew Painter and his injury situation. And I wanted to get a look at some of the guys down on the farm, specifically with the Reading Fightins, because there's a lot of interesting names playing for the Phillies AA affiliate. So I'm going to talk to Jake Starr, who's the broadcast manager for the Reading Fightins. He's been following that team as closely as anyone, and he can tell us what some of the timetables are on these guys and maybe some guys who could be on the move in a trade if the Phillies decide to go in that direction. Plus, the Phillies uh, had their draft this week, and we'll talk about their first-round draft pick a little bit. And uh, me and my oldest son will do the latest craze that is taking up the spare time of pretty much every baseball fan alive, the Immaculate Grid. We'll well, that'll be a little fun thing we'll do here at the end of the podcast. Uh, so all of that stuff coming up here on this edition of Hit and Season. But before we get into all that, just the normal business of please reminding you to tell your friends and family about Hit and Season if they're Phillies fans as we get revved up here for the second half of the season. Now is the time to grab their phones out of their hand, type in Hit and Season on their podcast app of choice, and force them to subscribe to the podcast. That that's that's what you really need to be doing because then they they're, they're going to thank you for it later on down the road anyway. But uh, leave a five star rating uh, for the Hit and Season podcast on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done that. Um, but we are on all the all the platforms. And so uh, yeah, get the word out about the Hit and Season podcast as we are about ready to go on another run here in the second half. But uh, for right now, we're going to talk about the All-Star game. Not not a, a real long time because I know the All-Star game really didn't have a whole lot of exciting things happen in it. But there was a real Philly flavor to this All-Star game. And that is because the Phillies coaching staff was managing this game because the Phillies, as the National League pennant winners, they get the honor of managing the All-Star game the following year. And so Rob Thompson does it again, friends. Uh, Chris Jones from the Absolutely Hammered Twitter feed uh, tweeted out that Rob Thompson ended the Phillies 11-year playoff drought last year. And now he ends the National League's 11-year All-Star game win drought this year. The man is, in fact, a legend. I agree with with Chris Jones on this. Uh, Schmenkman, the Good Fight stats guru, noted that the National League's record in All-Star games since 1981, with Phillies managers, 5-1. With other managers, 7-28-1. So clearly, if the National League wants to win All-Star games, you need to have Phillies managers Running the show. I mean, John. I mean, we 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 saw that Jim Fergosi uh, won it. I think uh, Dallas Green won it in uh, in 1981. Uh, Charlie Manuel, I believe, lost one of the All Star games uh, that that he ended up uh, managing in 2009 or 2010. I don't remember which one it was. Uh, but now you got Philly Rob in the mix as well. And uh, you know, hey, it's 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 not nothing, right? I mean, the National League wins three to two. Craig Kimbrell gets the save. He did have to throw 30 pitches in order to get that save. It it did not go smoothly. He did get the first two outs. He got Wander Franco to fly out and then struck out Vlad Guerrero Jr. It looked like it was going to be an easy one, two, three inning, but then uh, he walked Kyle Tucker and walked hometown hero Seattle's own Julio Rodriguez to put two men on with two out, but he got Jose Ramirez to strike out swinging to end it. And so uh, Craig Kimbrell gets the save uh, for, for the all-star game here. Um, Kind of a, kind of a, a, an interesting stat that I'm going to announce as my stat of the week at, at the end regarding uh, Craig Kimbrell and his appearance here in the All-Star game. But Nick Castellanos also got into this game, entered in the bottom of the fifth inning to replace Mookie Betts, and he played center field the entire game. Castellanos plays five innings in center field after the game. He said he had never played a single inning in center field in his entire life, not even in T-ball. And here he is in the All-Star game playing center field. He had three at-bats, struck out in his first at-bat, but walked in his second, uh, got to second base on a wild pitch and scored the tying run when Rockies catcher 
Elias Diaz hit that dramatic go-ahead home run in the eighth inning to put the NL on top three to two. He also added a single in the ninth inning uh, to go one for two in the All-Star game. That's about as good as you're going to see a Phillies player do. Phillies players typically don't do much in the All-Star games. Johnny Callison, of course, in 1964, the only Philly to win National League MVP, but uh, the Phillies have had a lot of All-Stars throughout the years, and I think there's only been a a couple of home runs hit by a Phillies player. I know Mike Schmidt had one um, in one of his all-star games, but it's it's unusual for a Phillies player to be a star performer unless you consider John Kruk's performance in the 93 all-star game and that at bat against Randy Johnson, of course, one of the most memorable moments in all-star game history. Of course, it ended in a strikeout, but who cares, right? It was a moment that will, it's an indelible in all of our minds and was just such an, a magical part of that 93 run that the, the Macho Row team uh, went off and did. But it was a good performance by both Nick Castellanos, by Craig Kimbrell, and by Philly Robb. I, I will note that the National League left 10 runners on base in that game, which is tied for the most in an All-Star game since 2009. Apparently, even when we're not watching the Phillies, we're, we are watching a Phillies-type performance. But uh, the National League wins the All-Star game 3-2, to two, and of course, uh, the Phillies were well represented in that game. Uh, let's dip into some of the trade rumors. Now that the All-Star game is behind us, the Phillies are going to enter the second half, and they're on a roll, of course. They've gone 23-9 and in their last 34 games. We've talked about that on, on, on the last podcast, so no need to kind of dive into all those numbers again. But it's pretty clear that they're going to need some help. As good as this team is, as well-funded as this team is, as well-put-together as the Phillies are, they are likely going to be adding at the trade deadline. And one of the names you keep hearing mentioned, I think it's going to grow more and more over the next few days and weeks, is St. Louis Cardinals third baseman Nolan Arenado. He seems like a guy... The new, I think John Heyman wrote a, a piece in the New York Post mentioning that Nolan Arenado, who has a full no-trade clause, by the way, does get the sense that the Cardinals could potentially move him at the trade deadline this uh, this uh, this month, in the next month. or Yeah, there's only a couple of weeks left. I mean, the, the, August, the trade deadline is August 1st, and so you've got a few weeks here. It's really going to start to heat up now. I'm actually kind of surprised we haven't seen really more trades. Sometimes you get some early July trades, but... After the All-Star game is typically when the hot stove really starts heating up, and trading season is here now. It is officially here. GMs are going to get on the phone, and they're going to start talking to each other. And I do believe one of their targets could be Nolan Arenado. Now, I've been talking about this potential trade on Twitter, and most of the reaction, I think, has been pretty pessimistic about a deal for Nolan Arenado, who lets... I want to make it perfectly clear. This dude is still awesome. Uh, and I won't, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I've, I've heard confirmed reports. The Phillies are interested in Arenado, but there's enough, there are enough whispers out there right now from, from some folks that, you know, kind of talk to me on, on, on DMS and all this kind of stuff that make me believe that, that the Phillies could be looking at, at Nolan Arenado. Obviously, he would be an upgrade over Alec Bohm. And Alec Bohm is having a fine year. I just, I'm in, in our grades that we did in the last podcast, episode 690, gave him a B. I think he's had a decent year. Um, he's made improvements. I think he's been, he's had an OPS over 800 over the last month since he came off the injured list. And like I said, an Alec Bohm with an OPS over 800 is a guy who can play third base for you every day. That's a, that's a productive offensive player. But Nolan Arenado is a future Hall of Famer. He is, I believe, the best combination of power and defense at third base since Mike Schmidt. He's that good. And he's having another outstanding season. He's on pace to be a four-win player. He's got two wins above replacement. He's sixth among third basemen, qualified third base, third baseman in terms of FWAR. He's hitting 283 with a 332 on base and a 518 slugging percentage. Remember, there was a lot of worry. Is Nolan Arenado a product of Coors Field? He doesn't play there anymore. And he still has an OPS of 850, which is third among all third basemen. The metrics say his defense has slipped a little bit this year. But again, I don't really trust defense, defensive metrics a whole lot. I would still bank on Nolan Arenado giving you those gold glove plays and that consistency and that level of production that he always has. He's got 19 home runs, 62 RBIs, 43 runs scored, and a weighted runs created of 128. 
Alec Bohm, on the other hand, has a 0.4 F war. As good a season as Bohm has had, he is 19th out of 20 qualified third basemen in terms of Fangraph's wins above replacement. He's hitting 280, so just three points below Nolan Arenado, and his on-base percentage is right there, 328 compared to 332. So both of those numbers are pretty similar, but where Arenado really separates himself is in the power cat- category. Bone with a 426 slugging percentage and a 754 OPS. That 754 OPS ranks 15th among third baseman. His 103 weighted runs created plus means he's just barely above a league average offensive third baseman, according to the numbers in uh, Alec Bohm's defense, although it's been better. And Alec Bohm has made tremendous strides defensively. He is not actively hurting you at third base, which is more than you could say at the beginning of last year. And he makes the occasional plus defensive play, but the metrics don't like him. And again, I'm not, I'm, I'm, You take the metrics with a grain of salt, but there's no doubt about the fact that Nolan Arenado has more range, he makes more difficult plays, and he's the better defensive third baseman. He's the better player. It's a clear upgrade. There's You cannot sit here and argue that it's not a clear upgrade. So... Why not? Why is it not an automatic yes? Why do you not automatically say, let's do it? Well, the pros for adding adding Arenado are simple. I mentioned it a second ago. He's Mike Schmidt, essentially, at third base. He's a bona fide superstar player at a position where the Phillies have not gotten that kind of production. He is a right-handed power bat, something this team desperately needs, and he's more consistent than Alec Bohm. Now, some of the negatives... Are Alec Bohm is a is a really important part of this team's chemistry, the day one of the daycare guys, and you worry about messing up team chemistry. I know you can't you can't turn down a huge talent upgrade simply because you're worried about messing up with team chemistry. They they moved on from Nick Maton and Matt Veerling this offseason, and those guys are pretty integral in maintaining the clubhouse chemistry. I don't think. I don't think that's a problem, right? You'd still make that trade. You still get Greg Soto for those guys. You would still make this deal. But it's something you have to at least consider. Alec Bohm is a beloved member of this team, and the fan base has really come come around on him. The fan base really likes him. It also, Nolan Arenado doesn't solve the left field problem. You still have to get Kyle Schorber out of left field. You've got to get Bryce Harper to first base so you can get Kyle Schwarber there to left field, out of left field and into the DH spot. And once you do that, you're looking at a combination of Brandon Marsh in left field, and maybe you find a right-handed platoon for that spot in left field and Christian Pache in center. Or you have Christian Pache as your center fielder against left hand. I mean, you know, I think you're going to see Pache and Marsh pretty much split those two outfield spots whenever Bryce Harper is ready to take over before Dave Dombrowski is ready to do something at the trade deadline. And they'll probably have a little bit of time to see how that works. But, and I guess, and and basically what you're saying there is that the offensive upgrade from Nolan Arenado to Nolan Arenado from Alec Bohm is enough to allow you to make it palatable to have Brandon Marsh and Christian Pache starting pretty much every day. Is it, though? Is it enough of an upgrade? Or would it be better to keep Alec Bohm to move Kyle Schorber to DH once Bryce Harper is ready and go and go out and get a left fielder who can hit for a little bit of power and plays good defense, a guy like Adam Duvall? Is that better for your team than shaking things up and, and going out and, and getting Nolan Arenado? I mean, Nolan Arenado is a, is a World Series caliber player. That's the kind of guy that you add when you're a player away. And right now, that might be the Phillies. The Phillies might be a player away, but it doesn't solve the left field problem. He's also owed, over the next four years, $35 million, $32 million, $27 million, and $15 million. He is signed through his age 36 season, which is the 2027 season. Now, his luxury tax salary each of the next three years is only $25.5 million. That's a reasonable luxury tax number for a guy who you have to think is probably going to see some slippage over those contract years. He's 32 right now, still playing at a very high level, but we may be starting to see a little bit of that slippage, more so on defense than than anything else. And how much longer can he be a plus-level defender at third base? Have those days already passed? It's possible those days have already passed. His numbers are right around average in terms of defensive metrics for, for Nolan Arenado. So maybe that maybe that process has already started. And then also, what would it take to get Nolan Arenado? What would the Phillies have to give up? 
you would hope that if they take on all the salary that the prospect cost wouldn't be much. What's the Cardinals' motivation at this point? Are they looking to clear roster space and and dump salary? Or do they want an upgrade someplace or do they want a little bit of both? Like they need pitching prospects. This the Cardinals are pitching starved and they desperately need pitching prospects. And the Phillies happen to have a few. Now, I don't think anybody's trading for Andrew Painter. The Phillies have made him untouchable, which I I have an issue with, and we'll talk about that in a second. But it also sounds as though they don't want to move Mick Abel. And if, given the injury concerns around Andrew Painter, you can understand maybe them being a little bit more reluctant to move a guy like Mick Abel, because what if Painter isn't ready next year? This has already been a lost season for him. You might need a guy like Mick Abel if you're going to lose Aaron Nola in free agency. Zach Wheeler is going to be out soon, too. Next year is his final season before his contract is up. You want to have some of these young pitchers ready to go for when that happens. So do you want to move one of those two guys in a deal for Nolan Arenado? You may have to. The Cardinals, if they're going to move their star third baseman, they might get a pitching prospect that's better than Griff McGarry. If Griff McGarry is your third best pitching prospect and he's doing fine and we're going to, you know, we're going to talk about him a little bit more uh, when we speak to Jake Starr here in just a couple of minutes. But I don't think that's a good enough arm to satisfy the St. Louis Cardinals. Now, you've got some some Reading players, opposition players who are are pitching or hitting really well. Uh, you've got first baseman Carlos De La Cruz, who's hitting 288, 362, 500 with 16 homers. You've got a great defensive center fielder in Johan Rojas, who is doing really well with the bat, kind of an eye-opening offensive season for him. 306, 361, 484 with nine homers and 20 doubles for Redding. I'm really excited about him. He could work his way into the outfield picture next year for the Phillies. At least I think so, but that's one of the things I want to ask Jake about here in a few minutes too. I really believe St. Louis would undoubtedly be interested in one of those guys, but also would be asking for Mick Abel, and I'm guessing the Phillies don't want to do that. Griff McGarry in nine starts has a 3.86 ERA in 32 and two thirds innings, 42 strikeouts in 32 and two thirds innings. He's a big strikeout guy, but he's also walked 25 and he's got a whip of 1.41. Now opponents are only hitting 179 against him. He's nasty. And maybe that's what the Cardinals want. Maybe they just want that stuff that they can work with. And McGarry is blowing some guys away in Reading right now, but I just don't think it's enough. Mick Abel, the numbers aren't aren't better. 13 starts, a 4.75 ERA in 60 and two-thirds innings, but a much better 70 to 35 strikeout-to-walk ratio. He also was the starter for the National League in the Futures game, which is a pretty prestigious thing. So, again, I just, I don't know if the Phillies would be willing to pull the trigger or if they should pull the trigger, but they might better be served. They might be better served, I should say. By going out and getting an Adam Duvall or getting a player like that, uh, the the Seattle Mariners, if they don't turn it around, could be uh, could be looking to move Teoscar Hernandez. And and Hernandez is not having the type of season that he has had in previous seasons at the plate. But he's a right-handed power bat. He has killed the Phillies whenever the whenever the Blue Jays have have played that. Whenever the the Blue Jays played them, and he was with the Blue Jays last year. I think playing in Seattle maybe has messed with him a little bit. It's a tough ballpark to to hit in. Uh, he is striking out a whole lot. The last thing the Phillies need is another big strikeout bat in the lineup. But if it's Christian Pache or Teoscar Hernandez, I think I'm going Teoscar Hernandez. I'm probably, I mean, that's that's a guy who could go on a hot streak and carry you power-wise. And he would be a right-handed power bat. Now, I don't know much about his defense, uh, I'd have to look up some of his. Uh, I would have to look up some of his de- defensive metrics to see if he would be a. Anything's going to be an upgrade over Kyle Schwarber, but how much of an upgrade? As I look up the numbers, certainly much better than Kyle Schwarber. He's been worth three defensive runs saved, zero outs above average, so probably uh, a league average defender out in left field, maybe slightly above average, but certainly an upgrade over what the Phillies have had in left field with Kyle Schwarber. So um, Teoscar Hernandez would be a name I would think about, and and, and that, may, that might make more sense. Trying to fill your need for a right-handed power bat by looking at those kinds of players. And there might be a couple other names. There are a couple other names out there that people are talking about. None of them are really all that exciting to me. I'll tell you a guy who interests me, 
But I just think the injury situation, especially because he's had a back issue, Chris Bryant would be interesting. But again, that's a big money deal. Uh, you'd have to really love his physicals and and think that he can recover. I still think there's a good player in there somewhere. He just it's been a disaster ever since he went to Colorado. He has not been able to get healthy. But um, you know that's a right-handed power bat that the Rockies, I'm sure, would move if given the right opportunity. But uh, it's probably it's probably not a good option. Adam Duvall, Teoscar Hernandez makes sense as a corner outfielder. And I can I, I could be talked into Nolan Arenado. I absolutely could be talked into Nolan Arenado depending on the price going back to St. Louis. One last thing before we get to Jake, Andrew Painter. Uh, this happened last week. Shut down from throwing again after revealing more pain in his elbow. We were all fearful of a Tommy John surgery and the internet doctors out there were already screaming that he should have had the surgery Already, he should have had it months ago. Well, it actually shows the Phillies got good news in that the UCL is healing. The The MRI showed that the UCL is healing. It isn't torn. It isn't in worse shape. It's actually in better shape. The Phillies were surprised at the news. They were pleasantly surprised. He'll need more rest, but he still does not need surgery. And these these surgeons, they know what they're talking about. They're not going to open up a guy if they don't need to open him up. And they're not opening up Andrew Painter. So this is great news that the, the UCL is healing. He doesn't need Tommy John surgery. I certainly think you can't expect him to have any impact on the 2023 Phillies. I would be shocked if he gets, if he's, if he's even pitching again this year. Um, I do think it's not great that this kid can't seem to throw a baseball without it hurting all of a sudden. This is already going to be a lost season for him, which is going to set him back now for 2024 and 2025. Because this was supposed to be a year that he was going to build off of 2022, build up his innings, get to around 130 innings, 140 innings, somehow, somewhere, some way along the line through some combination of the minors and pitching for the Phillies. He might not pitch at all. He might get in the Arizona Fall League, but he might not pitch at all this year. So now you're back to zero. So what what does he look like? What are What can you expect from him in, in 2024 now? He's, you can't count on him as a part of the rotation. You can't count on him as a guy who's going to replace Aranola. It's unreasonable to expect him to be a major force in next year's rotation, and he is certainly not a part of anything the Phillies are going to do this year. They're probably going to have a limit on his innings or a limit on his pitches. He still has not faced live hitters this year, so there's no way he's going to be with the Phillies this year, and it remains to be seen if he pitches at all here in the second half. And this draws a larger question. Andrew Painter is... And untouchable. The Phillies are not going to trade him. And, and I understand that impetus. I understand that thinking. These kinds of pitchers, these types of talents only come along so often. He's super young. Even if he doesn't make a big impact until 2025, he's like going to be 21 at that point, 22. I mean, he is so young. We've been talking about him as a potential contender to be a big force for the Phillies. He's 19 still. He's still just a baby. And so they're obviously going to be super cautious and take it super slow with him. I have no problem with the timetable that they had laid out. The timetable of getting him to the majors this year, it looked, it looked, all the, remember all the stories that we read about in the papers about, uh, on you know, thanks, I'm reading the papers. Nobody reads the papers anymore, but uh, that the Beats were writing about all the conditioning that he went through in the offseason, all the training that he's been going through over the last few years. It's all been building to him being ready to perform at the major league level and be healthy and get his arm to the point where it needs to be, and now it's all shot up. I mean, he just, it, it's, it just goes to show you, you can plan these things out. You can, you can take these things step by step. You can go to all of the clinics and, and they have all these plans set out for you. And I think it's good that his, his UCL's not torn. Maybe part of that was help is 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 one of the reasons why he doesn't need Tommy John surgery. I, I just think we don't know. We don't know these things. And it's always good to be cautious and to have a plan, but it's not working out. Whatever, whatever they've been doing with Andrew Painter, it's not working out. It may have nothing to do with what the Phillies were planning. It's just, it's just the body. The body was not meant to throw a baseball in this way. But it gets back to the point of, should any young player be untouchable? Especially a pitcher. Should any young pitcher be untouchable? 
The Phillies got JT Realmuto for Sixto Sanchez, and, and a lot of people were screaming their heads off about it because at the time, Sixto Sanchez was seen as in kind of the same way as Andrew Painter and untouchable. But there were those injury concerns. He could never really seem to get it together. So the Marlins took Sixto Sanchez, and uh, we got JT Realmuto, and it's pretty clear the Phillies have won that trade, right? The Phillies have come out on the clear winning end of the Sixto Sanchez JT Realmuto trade because Sixto can't stay healthy. Spencer Howard was a guy not quite to the degree of Andrew Painter, but certainly a top, top, top pitching prospect for this team and just couldn't stay healthy. And then when he came to the big league level, couldn't figure out how to pitch effectively. He's gone to the Rangers, can't figure out how to pitch effectively there. Two blue chip pitching prospects that either had injury problems or were just ineffective at the big league level. I don't know that Andrew Painter is going to be like those two guys. I don't, I mean, I'm not, I think it's way too early to say that. And I do think, I don't, I certainly would not include Andrew Painter in any trade at the trade deadline right now. But uh, he's not as untouchable for me as he probably is for most people. He's 19. And if he was 22, I'd be much more willing to move on from him. But because he's so young, because he has two or three years where even if he doesn't get to the big league level for the next two years, He's still going to be a baby when he comes to the big league level, even if he doesn't pitch in the bigs in 2024 and he's making his debut in 2025. He's still 21 at that time. He's still one of the youngest pitchers in Major League Baseball. So I it's, I think because we've been talking about him and building him up, it, it makes him feel older than he is, where really guys his age should be in double A, really even the single A. But you know, we see with guy like guys like Mick Abel and Griff McGarry, they're in in Double A, and they've they're a little older than Andrew Painter, but not by a whole lot. But it just it makes you it makes you question: at what point does a young pitching prospect cease to be untradeable? Just something for everybody to think about. Because the Phillies have had so much success at the major league level these last few years, we don't talk about the prospects as much as we used to. Remember during the the rebuild, guys, we would talk about the prospects almost exclusively because the major league team was just a little bit too difficult to watch and nobody really wanted to talk about those guys anyway. But with the big league team having the success it had last year and the big payroll, we don't often get a chance to look at what's going on down on the farm, but it's very, very important as we've seen from the daycare and as we're going to hear more about over the next couple of weeks as the trade deadline grows closer we should probably be checking in on what's happening down in the minors and joining me to talk a little bit about what's going on with the Reading Fightins is broadcast manager for the Reading Fightins, Jake Starr. Jake, welcome to Hit and Season. How are you, man? I'm good. Really appreciate you having me on. Super excited to get a chance to talk about some of the exciting prospects we have here in Reading. Yeah, we've been hearing a lot about some of these guys, and so I thought this was a really good time because I'll bet you some of these names are going to come up in trade discussions or in the rumor mill over these next couple of weeks. But even just as we're looking at the future of the team, it's important to know kind of where these guys are. And with Redding being double A, it's possible some of these guys could be here next year. By the way, you can follow Jake on Twitter at JSTAR1999. The first guy I want to talk a little bit about is Mick Abel, uh, the team's number two, the organization's number two prospect. He started for the National League in the Futures game. I know his ERA doesn't look fantastic at 4.75. I know his whip is high at 1.41, but sometimes a pitcher's performance, especially in the minors, goes a little bit beyond the numbers. From what you've seen from him beginning of the season until now, have you seen progression from him? Have you seen improvement from him? And if so, how has he progressed and improved? Yeah, no, I mean, without a doubt, there's been improvement, which at the end of the day is the big thing you're looking at above numbers when it comes to a prospect, especially someone like Mick Abel. And, and, and like, you, you look at Abel's game by game, and it, there's a couple of starts where definitely kind of inflated the ERA and you take those those ones out and you're looking at a guy who's probably around a 3-3-5 type pitcher in terms of the earned run average but I think the biggest spot of improvement for McGabel this year has been you know a confidence I think each time out there he's becoming a more confident pitcher and b I think it's the off-speed stuff too we all know the fastball has a velocity 98-99 obviously the key is locating it throwing it for strikes one of when he's on his best, it's when he can get that fastball up about letter high and get guys to swing through it. But the key is when he goes up, it's got to get up. There's been, you know, a few times when he gets into trouble where he kind of leaves it more out over the plate, and that's where he gets into trouble, even at 98, 99. But mm-hmm. the off-speed stuff, I think, has really been 
a huge sign of improvement for Abel this year. The slider especially sits high 80s, low 90s, and it has some good bite. And when it's on, he can be really dangerous. The changeup has some good downward action on that pitch as well, and that's gotten better. And I think just confidence-wise, too, I think, you know, a lot of people forget he's he's 21 years old. He's, you know, really playing in his first, second full season since his junior year of high school. He, you know, didn't have a senior year because of COVID, then kind of dealt with injuries 21, 22 this is kind of the first year where he's pitching more on a schedule. He's been in the same place all year, so I think that definitely helps. And what I've really been impressed with by him, too, is his ability to bounce back. He hasn't let bad starts spiral. He's done a really good job of, okay, I've struggled one outing. I'm able to come back here and, you know, really turn in a, a strong outing. Now, you know, the next thing's going to be the Phillies haven't really pushed Abel uh, much in terms of innings or pitches this year. His season high has only been six innings, which... In this day and age of baseball, you can totally get away with having a guy that can throw six innings. I think the next thing is just going to be, you know, continue to get able out there, keeping that pitch count down, and the best way to do that is try and limit the walks, which I think better efficiency, keeping the walk numbers down, that's going to be that next step for Mick Abel. But, you know, the, just the makeup of him, I, I think it's, you know, really easy to believe that those next steps are going to come, and when they do come, he's going to be a really dangerous pitcher. Do you see him moving up this year, or does it seem to you like he should spend the whole year in, in Reading? Yeah, it's tough. I mean, it's it's a tough dynamic because a guy like Abel, you don't want to move up until you're sure that he's ready to move up. The last thing you want to do is move him up and inhibit his confidence at all and have to send him back down. So I think for the immediate future, we're going to see Abel here in Reading. Uh, you know, I think maybe late august september maybe mm-hmm. the phillies make a decision all right let's let's challenge him let's give him a chance to pitch against triple a pitchers but I, I think for now he i think he's here at least for the next month month and a half and then when september comes we'll see what the phillies decide to do it's definitely going to be interesting and if he continues on the trajectory that he's been on his last few starts before the all-star break i think there's a good chance that there's conversations being had about him maybe getting a chance in lehigh valley later on in the season Let's talk about one of the other guys in the rotation that people can get excited about, and that's Griff McGarry. Now, he he has an ERA that looks a little bit better than Mick Abel's, but as we all know with McGarry, the walks are the issue. Command is the issue. How has he been doing improving? Has he improved in the command department? Yeah, I mean, that, that's a big question mark about McGarry because stuff-wise, I think, you know, when you look at McGarry, Abel Painter, McGarry, may be one of the most big league ready arms just in terms of stuff but also he's 24 years old he pitched in college which painter and abel both high school draft picks so of course mcgarry on the you know strength and development progression line is he should be further along than those guys yeah so he's going to be more ready just naturally he's 24 years old but no i mean what kind of similar to abel the biggest thing with griff mcgarry is the control side of things and he's had some starts where it's looked really good, and he's had some starts where, you know, he's struggled with the command side of things. So, you know, I think it's slowly but surely getting there. I think that's kind of the big next step because, you know, his fastball, many people have described it as quote-unquote electric. And like Abel, he's, he throws a fastball that sits in the upper 90s. So if he can locate that for strikes, he's once again another guy who's going to be uh, – a really good arm, a really good pitcher for this team. So, you know, it's slowly but surely coming along. I think he's another guy who doesn't let bad starts snowball. He's, you know, had had outings where he's walked five, walked six, and he's bounced back and looked really good. So he's another guy who I think is getting closer. Uh, you know, and for him, it's just going to be getting reps, getting innings. And the more he does it, feels out that release point, the better he's going to get. Does McGarry have the best pure stuff out of the three top star, uh, uh, pitching prospects? It's tough. I mean, it really is. Obviously, I haven't seen Painter in person yet. Right, right. But just from what I've seen, I mean, I, I think it's close. Like, between what I've seen in Abel and McGarry, they both have really good stuff. Both their fastballs jump out of the arm. Uh, both have really good off-speed stuff. Uh, like I said, I think in terms of just, like, the physical development side of things, McGarry's probably further along that curve just by naturally being older. But in terms yeah. of stuff, like, from what I've seen, it's, it's really hard to judge because, like, they're, they're also, like, two different pitchers. Abel's a tall, lean, lanky guy, you know, gets on top of the ball and comes downhill. Or McGarry, you know, 6'2 guy who – different style of pitching. So both have really good stuff. And, man, it's hard to 
really judge who's got the better stuff because they're both unique in their own ways. Yeah. Every time we turn around, Jake, it seems like we see big games from Carlos de la Cruz and Johan Rojas right now. And I want to start with Rojas. We all know that he has, throughout his minor league career, been touted as a brilliant defensive center fielder, but his offensive game has really come around. I read some of his stats a little bit earlier in the podcast. Do you see him as a possible contributor at the big league level as early as next year, given the fact he's already major league ready defensively, and they're just kind of waiting for his for his bat to come around? Oh, I totally do. Like, I, I've been in the boat that I think Johan Rojas, I think he can, can contribute by September. I don't know if that's going to be uh, the case or not. But what was a guy like Rojas, the defense is, he's the best defensive center fielder in minor league baseball. That's what the metrics have shown. And the question mark surrounding him entering this year was, was the bat going to come around? Could he get the ball in the air? Could he hit for power? Could he drive the ball to the gaps for extra bases? And every metric has shown you know, obviously, we've had a chance to watch him. The eye test has shown that, but the metrics have shown that, too. Obviously, we know he has the speed. He has 30 stolen bases this year. He had over 60 last year. He's pacing for a little bit under that, but he's still pacing for north of a 50 stolen base season. So that's great. The defense is great. The home run numbers are getting up there. Uh, he's getting close to double figures on the year, which will be a career high. He has 20 doubles on the year. He's got five triples. So he's driving the ball for power, he's getting into the air, and he's hitting for extra bases. And that was going to be the question mark. If Johan Rojas could do that, he's really going to take that next step. And he has, and he's doing it with consistency. He's hitting mm. over 300. It's July. You know, you're kind of at the point now where you're past the midway point of the season. What a guy is at this point of the season is, I think what a guy is, barring some big slump that happens, I think what Johan Rojas has proved to be this year is a guy that can hit for contact, hit for power, use his speed to get himself on base, and, and that's that's what he's proven. So, you know, obviously, outfield's a big question mark throughout the whole organization. I know Lehigh Valley has a bit of a logjam with Muziati, Cave, uh, so on and mm -hmm. so forth. And the Phillies, you know, you, you think kind of long-term, you think about next year. Obviously, you'd love to get Kyle Schwarber back into that DH spot. Does Bryce Harper go back to right field next year? What do you do with Castellanos? But defensively, I have a really hard time saying that Johan Rojas doesn't have a spot in the Phillies' 2024 outfield at some point. That The defense is too good, the speed's too good, and the bat's getting to a point where it's going to be really hard to not take into consideration Johan Rojas when you're starting to figure out the Phillies' uh, outfield jigsaw puzzle here in the next mm -hmm. you know, 8 to 10 months. Yeah, 306 batting average for Rojas and also a 361 on base percentage. So his his OBP is not solely based on on base hits. He is walking a little bit there too, which is which is good to see. Uh the other one of the other guys I wanted to talk to you about was Carlos de la Cruz, who big tall kid, right? I mean, I've heard some people say like he looks like a just height-wise, he looks like Dave Winfield. You don't see players this tall typically uh, play positions at the big league level. But here he is in Reading. He's hitting 288 with a 362 on base and a 500 slugging percentage. 16 home runs on the season. Uh, he's playing first base mostly for Reading right now, correct? Yeah, no, I mean, the thing with De La Cruz that's interesting is that he's listed at 6'8". He tells people he's 6'9". I think it was Matt Gelb who was out here couple weeks back from the athletic who wrote about de la cruz and one of the nuggets that he put in his story was that there has never been a position player that has been taller than six eight six nine in mlb history so de la cruz would be the first of that sense and yeah i mean he's played all three outfield positions he's naturally an outfielder but the phillies came to him last summer and asked him could you play first base so later in the year last year worked at first base played a lot of first base every day earlier this year the progression has been great uh, defensively, but he hasn't played first base as much. Jalen Ortiz came down from Lehigh Valley, so Ortiz has been pretty much the everyday first baseman. De La Cruz is usually playing the corner, so play a little bit of center when they give Rojas a night off from the field. Uh, right now, he's probably playing about two days a week at first base, so uh, it, it's going to be interesting to kind of see where the Phillies project De La Cruz long term. Is he, you know, more of a corner outfielder? Is he more of a first baseman? And the question becomes. With the Reese Hoskins contract situation, you assume also Bryce Harper is going to go back to right field once he's fully healed from the Tommy John surgery. So if you don't bring Hoskins back, there becomes a need organizationally for first base. And if you're going to address it internally, 
maybe summer of 24, Carlos De La Cruz could be an option because, you know, Mm -hmm. the bat's there. It's just about cutting down on strikeouts for him. And I've seen him progress enough at first base this year where if another year of work, I think he could be a contributor there at some point. Yeah, the future of some of these guys in Philadelphia is so dependent, I think, on how this Bryce Harper at first base thing shakes out. If they like Harper at first base, that could mean De La Cruz would be a guy who transitions back to the outfield full time and and then you you don't have enough you know then you've got a Jorge you know uh and then you've got um uh, uh Johan Rojas there that you're also going to try you you'd like to be part of the picture and, and you've got Castellanos and you've got uh, Schwarber and you got all these different pieces that must make a GM's head go crazy thinking about all the different possibilities and sometimes you just kind of have to let things play out but they're gonna have to make some decisions here at the trade deadline because if they want to go out and they want to add a corner outfielder to get Kyle Schwarber out of left field which is something that everyone who watches this team knows needs to happen here in the second half or there's been a lot of some rumblings I talked earlier in the podcast about you know could they go out and trade for Aaron Nola it sure sounds like the Cardinals are going to be selling anything that's not nailed down so there's lots of different priorities here there's there's pitching and you're going to hear I'm sure people have been coming to Reading to scout some of these different players you're going to hear McAble's name McGarry's name uh, De La Cruz's name Rojas's name come up in in trade speculation are you aware of any of these guys being scouted right now I mean, we're not not aware. It's just obviously all speculation at this point. And look, it's going to be tough because you know, there, there, there's a lot of intrigue. The, the system, I think, for the first time in a while is pretty, you know, I don't say loaded, but it has a good amount of intriguing prospects, you know, top to bottom. I mean, here in Reading, as Rojas, De La Cruz, Abel McGarry, throw Ethan Wilson in the conversation, Andrew Baker, who... You know, the numbers haven't been great this year, but he still has great stuff. Kirkering's up here now. I mean, mm-hmm. you look at the, that Clearwater team that just won a first-half title. Jersey Shore has a bunch of prospects. How Yu Lee, uh, another name as well. So the organization has a lot of really intriguing prospects for, I feel like, the first time in a good bit. But we know Dave Dombrowski, when he has good prospects, he isn't afraid to include them in trades. So, yeah, we haven't really heard anything specifically. It's all just... You know, r- you know, rumors at this point and speculation of kind of who goes where. I would be be hard pressed to see Abel included in a trade conversation. I, I I'm pretty confident Painter's an untouchable at this point. Uh, but I I think if you're going to put Abel on the table, no pun intended, I guess. <laughs> kind of Abel on the table there, but yeah. if, you're, if we're gonna put Abel out there, it's got to be. Nolan Arenado, Paul Goldschmidt conversation. I think unless you're going for, you know, a superstar player of multiple years of team control, you really shouldn't be putting Mick Abel out there in the conversation because who knows what happens to Aaron Nola. Zach Wheeler's mm-hmm. getting up there in age. To have a Mick Abel, Andrew Painter, uh, Griff McGarry in your system right now, uh, I, I think it would be really hard-pressed to get rid of one of those guys in a trade. And even with a guy like Arenado... If the Phillies are willing to kind of open up their pockets a little bit and say, all right, I'm willing to take on the whole Arenado contract, maybe that saves you from uh, giving up a Mick Abel in a trade like that because you're taking on the rest of that deal. So, yeah, I mean, it's a tough tough, uh, situation because, you know, like we really don't know anything. And there's the organization has a lot of intriguing prospects and a lot of intriguing guys that could be included in trades. So... You know, I'm definitely intrigued to see what direction they go with over these next two, three weeks before the deadline. Yeah, I was talking about that a little bit earlier in the podcast, The, um, you know, how Nola and, and Wheeler's situation could determine a lot of a, a lot of what they want to do. And I also wonder if Andrew Painter's uncertain injury situation makes them even more reluctant to move somebody like Mick Abel because they may have some openings coming up in the rotation. And unfortunately for Painter, I think given the fact, yes, his elbow's healing, but he's he's not going to pitch at the big league level this year. Who knows when he's going to face live hitters again? Who knows when he's going to start throwing again? It's it. This is looking like a, a lost year for, for Andrew Painter in terms of developing, uh, you know, those innings on his arm, building up, uh, building up that, uh, um, that, uh, that, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I can't think of it. it just flew out of my head, but the stat, not the stamina, but you know, the endurance on your arm to be able to, to be able to get those innings under your belt and build on those year after year. 
he's going to get a big zero this year in terms of innings. And so now you go back to kind of square run and square one in 2024, it just maybe makes them even more determined to keep McAble here at the, at the trade deadline. Yeah, and the thing about Painter and Abel is they're both so young. Abel will be 22 yes. next month, and Painter just turned 20 in, in March. So it's, you know, if Painter doesn't pitch at all this year, he's still going to be 21 at the beginning of next year. So it's it's no different than a kid that an early college draftee at 21 years old. So, you know, Painter, he's still so young and so much more to develop, and he's already got such great stuff that, you know, you'd like to eventually see him pitch in competitive games this year, but you also know the Phillies and Scott Boris are all going to be super, super careful with him, as they should, because he's really talented. And if he's someone you want in your rotation for the next 10, 15 years, you have to make sure you make the right decision right now and not put his future in jeopardy. Well, folks, there's a lot of exciting baseball going on in Reading, and that's my old stomping grounds. I, I used to work at a radio station in Reading for about four years. I've been to the ballpark a number of different times, and it's a great place to watch a game. And there's a lot of really intriguing, talented players uh, playing for the Reading Fighting. So make sure that you check them out. Head on over to the ballpark. Uh, and in the meantime, make sure that you're uh, listening to Jake Starr, who is uh, we'll have back on the show again uh, in the near future as well. Uh, again, follow Jake on Twitter at JStar1999. Jake, thanks for coming on Hitting Season. I really appreciate it. Thanks. I really appreciate you having me on. Enjoyed chatting. All right. Well, in keeping with the theme of draft picks uh, or young prospects and all that, the Phillies held their draft this week. Uh, obviously, Major League Baseball moved the draft to All-Star Weekend, and the Phillies made a slew of picks. We're going to talk about the first rounder. And uh, I know uh, there, there's other write-ups. Scott Lauber has a good write-up about all the prospects, uh, all the draft picks that that the Phillies made. Uh, we'll talk about the first rounder that they selected, high school shortstop Aiden Miller with the 27th overall pick. The Phillies say he has a great combination of hit and power. MLB Pipeline agrees. They had him ranked as the 13th best prospect who fell to the Phillies at number 27 overall. And he fell to the Phillies be. It seems because he broke the hamate bone in his hand this year, which caused him to miss most of his senior season, which is the same injury that Dominic Brown suffered and really kind of set him back in his career. Miller had surgery on his hand in late February and then invited every team to watch a workout at the University of Tampa back in late May. And apparently the Phillies liked what they saw. He's a kid who played high school baseball in the Phillies backyard just outside Clearwater in Tampa. So it's not, when we say a local product, not a Philly product, but somebody that that Philly scouts had seen a lot of in his first few years, and it was somebody they obviously had on their radar to take at the end of the first round. MLB Pipeline's prospect grades have him as a 55 overall on the 20 to 80 scale. He's got a 50 hit tool, 60 power tool, 50 run, 60 arm, 50 field. Um, the thing that they like about him is that he, he seems to be a big power guy, a right-handed power bat who can play shortstop right now. It's likely that he's going to have to move to third base at some point. Um, and he's a little bit older than you would normally get for a high school kid, but in baseball, that's okay. I mean, it's not like you're, you're drafting like a 22 year old college rookie for football where you, the, the, the career, the, the career span of a, of an NFL player is so much shorter. You, you want to get a guy, um, on the younger side rather than on the older side. But, you know, for, for our purposes, maybe that means a, a more accelerated path to the big leagues. But, uh, this is the first high school infielder the Phillies have taken in the first round since Cornelius Randolph in 2015. There's a name that did not go that well. Uh, the Phillies, like I mentioned, plan to keep him at shortstop for now, but he likely projects as a defender somewhere else. And we're going to talk more about this uh, when Justin and Liz and I get together um, on the next podcast because uh, we're going to do something fun uh, with regard to Philly's draft picks. One of the fun things that is really gaining some popularity around baseball with baseball fans, I know Liz was talking about this. I don't know if she said it on the podcast or in our Slack channel, but at the Sabre Conference last weekend, it seemed like everybody was playing Immaculate Grid. And if you're not familiar with Immaculate Grid, it's a new game you can play on your phone. It's kind of like Wordle. It's a nine-grid system where basically it looks like a tic-tac-toe board. And along the left-hand side, you might have two different teams 
and a different milestone and along the top you'll have the same thing and what you have to try and do is you have to try and guess the players that achieved those certain milestones or who played for those two teams and so it's really really hard I have never gotten an immaculate grid but I was doing this with my oldest son uh, my 12 year old who is sitting next to me here and we were doing this the other day and he was amazing me with how many names he remembered of players who played for both of the teams and we got to like I think eight out of nine or seven out of nine or something like that before we eventually caved. So uh, we came pretty close. We're going to give it a try here today on the podcast, and it's going to be live. And if we if we succeed, great. If not, we fail, right? Yeah. All right. So are you excited for this? Absolutely. I love this game. We like the last time, the last two times we played it um, was very fun. Yes. So I, I think this is a game. This is going to be our game that we play every day, right? I'm not going to let you miss a night. <laughs> I know you won't. You'll remind me every time. And uh, th- it's been in the news because Baseball Reference uh, bought the game this week, and it's just a perfect marriage uh, between one of the great baseball uh, information data websites out there and a game where you really need to have a computer-like knowledge of baseball in order to get these immaculate grids. And sometimes people try and get the most – people who are more advanced than, than us try to get the highest score possible by guessing the most obscure players possible. Now, the thing about this is you can't miss – yeah, um, that that is annoying. Like with Wordle, you have several chances because mm-hmm. it's kind of like Wordle, but in Wordle you have several chances. But in this, you have to get every guess right. Right. So you have to guess every. If you miss one, you you only get nine guesses to get all nine things right. So on today's grid, as we're looking here on Thursday, July thirteenth, along the left-handed side, a left-hand side, the first row is Detroit Tigers. So there's going to be three Detroit Tigers players we have to guess. On the second row, it's Oakland A's. And on the third row, it's San Francisco Giants. Then for the first column, it has the Colorado Rockies. The second column has the San Diego Padres. And the third column has 500-plus home run career hitters. So I think the easiest thing to do is to get the milestone players first. I have the most difficulty with guessing the players who played for multiple teams. Yeah, I think the milestones is the milestones are easier too. All right, so let's start off with the Detroit Tigers in the first row, 500 home run hitters. Who, which Detroit Tigers hitters have hit at least 500 home runs? I know Miguel Cabrera did a little while ago, but did Al Kaline or did he miss? I'm pretty sure Al Kaline is a 500 home run hitter. Actually, no, he's not. I just remembered that he's not. Okay, so we know Miguel Cabrera has hit 500 home runs. We could put him in. He was really close, though. It was like 475, I think. Okay, so do we want to guess Miguel Cabrera, or do you want to go with anybody else? Let's go with Miguel Cabrera. All right, Miguel Cabrera. I think Hank Greenberg also hit 500 home runs. No, he only played like 10 seasons. Oh, that's right. You would know that. Miguel Cabrera it is, and 91% of people guessed Miguel Cabrera. Yeah, that was that was an obvious guess. Yeah, well, we'll look afterwards and see how many other Tigers players hit 500 more or more home runs, and they didn't have to play their whole career with the Tigers. Just they had to I play know, some no. of their career. It could have been like three games they played with the Tigers. I know. Yeah, that is, that is helpful. Like uh, there was on the I think it was Yankees and Mets, and I guess Dave Kingman, and he played for like the Yankees for only like half a season or half an hour half, half an hour because he got traded like four times in one season yeah that was dave kingman who is the uh the kyle schwarber of that era all right oakland a's 500 home run hitters there's an easy name here too reggie jackson that's not the one i was thinking of but you're absolutely right reggie jackson i was thinking mark mcguire but reggie jackson is obviously a good one and he was guessed by only i'll bet you more oh, people guessed 21%. yeah 21 percent yeah, twenty-one percent. I guess I guess you're right with Mark McGuire. I'll bet you he probably got at least like fifty or sixty percent. And then the San Francisco Giants. There's an obvious one there too. Um, I know you're thinking Willie Mays, but we could do Willie McCovey because he's um a little less well known. So Willie Mays would have worked, and Barry Bonds also would have worked. But let's do Willie McCovey because you're right. I think Willie McCovey. And I think, you know, listen, you're 12, and the fact you're pulling out Willie McCovey, there's not a lot of kids out there who are pulling Willie McCovey at 12 years old. Only 11% guessed Willie McCovey. There you go. So Willie McCovey is uh, is our third. So we've got Miguel Cabrera, Reggie Jackson, Willie McCovey as our 500 home run hitters. So that third column is all filled up. Now comes the hard part. We need to fill up the first column and the second column. So upper left-hand corner, we need to think of a player that played for both the Rockies and the Tigers. This is what's going to take the longest. Um, let's see. 
How about let's we we had a little confab here. Um, how about Ellis Burks? Someone try Ellis Burks. I guess so. I've tried out a lot of names that are known, but yeah, I don't think any of them played for the Rockies and the Tigers. No, I'm I'm blanking on this one. So we'll try Ellis Burks. I don't think I'm right, but I really can't think of anybody else. And it is not correct. And we did not get. So we already are are done with the immaculate grid. But let's keep going. Let's try some of these other ones. Um, how about Tigers and Padres? Any Tigers and Padres jump to mind? Padres. Um, Man, what is it with the what is it about the Tigers that it seems like everybody goes to Detroit and then you just forget about that they ever existed? About them, except for like all those guys who hit over five hundred, like Miguel Cabrera and Al Line and Hank Greenberg, and they have to be really big Tigers or you forget them. Yeah. Uh, let's see, Tigers and Padres. Did uh, Trevor Hoffman ever play for the Tigers? I don't. I don't know. Did he play his whole career in San Diego? I don't think so. I think he played one team, but I don't know. Let's I don't try. know who else. Let's try it. I got nobody better. <laughs> Trevor Hoffman. That is incorrect. No, so we're straight. We we are having difficulty here. We're having. This is why I've never won because I just don't have this kind of baseball reference like encyclopedic knowledge. Let's let's try A's and Rockies. Any A's and Rockies players? That should be a better fit, I would think. Yeah, the two West Coast teams might work better. These are all West Coast teams except for the Tigers, which as East Coast people, that's probably why it's throwing us. We don't really watch these teams all that much. You have to be from the Central to care for the Tigers to know any of their players. All right, I think Jason Giambi plays for the A's and the Rock. Played for the A's and the Rockies. That one I'm sure about. Yeah, that sounds right. All right, let's let's type in Jason Giambi. Jason Giambi, and that one is correct. Guessed by 22 percent of people. All right, so we got one there. We're not totally useless human beings. Uh, <laughs> now we need to think of someone who played for the A's and the Padres. Dave Kingman also played for the A's and Padres. He's a good guess because he was everywhere. All right, so Dave King, the ubiquitous Dave Kingman, which means everywhere, just you know, for your general vocabulary. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dave Kingman is correct, guessed by zero point two percent of of fellow guessers. So that's a good one. Yeah, I mean, like he only played for like two months with the Padres or something like that. I would not have gotten that one. So you you definitely got me there. All right, the last ones here, the Giants and the Rockies. I would think that there would be some good overlap here. It would be a rather easy guess, I guess. All right, somebody just popped into my head because, again, this is another guy who played a lot of different places is Juan Uribe. He had a big home run against the Phillies in the 2010 NLCS, and so I hate him, and so he always pops into my head. Want to try Juan Uribe? Yeah, for Padres and Rockies. No, no, for Giants and Rockies. Giants and Rockies, like I said, that – is a, a hard guess. That is correct. Wow, I got that. Guess by only two percent yep. of the people. Um, other people. That's correct. Nice. All right, so we have one guess left, and we can either choose to do Giants and Padres, Tigers and Rockies, or Tigers and Padres. What do you want to do? Um. Let's go with. The Padres and Giants. All right, Giants and Padres. We haven't tried to make a guess for this yet. I want Eric Shaw. Remember Eric Shaw, the pitcher. Eric Shaw. His name does ring a bell, but I can't put my finger on it. Okay, because you said we should have held off and used Willie McCovey for for Giants and Padres instead of the 500 home run club. I know he's like the only guy I can remember who played for the who. Was good and played for the Padres. I also think there's a pitcher from the '80s named Atley Hamaker that pitched for both, but I'm pretty sure maybe Bud Black. Did Bud Black play for both teams? No, I think he played for the Rockies. Bud Black managed oh, the Bud Rockies. Black managed Rockies, yeah. Uh, I know he played for the Giants. Um, he might have played for the Padres. He might have also managed the Padres. I think Eric Shaw. I don't know Eric Shaw, but never heard of him. But do you want to do you want to try it, or do you want to think keep thinking? Somebody maybe you know more for certain played for both of those teams. We can keep thinking. Okay, let's keep thinking for a minute. Because you've got uh, did Ken Caminiti ever play for the Giants? Now he played for the Padres. Yeah, he played 
and the Astros. Right. Um. Just, I don't think he played for the Giants, yeah, did he? Yeah, I don't think he played for the Giants. I seriously doubt he played for the Giants. All right, so we've decided we're going to try Eric Shaw here. Because we cannot think of anybody else. Nope. And that's okay, because we're not sickos or anything. Eric Shaw is incorrect. Okay. Yeah. So, Rarity, we, we only got uh, Four, five. 447. Right. Unfortunately. And we were below today's the average score. We got uh the average score is six point six and we got six. So we actually fell below the average here. Let's see if we can uh we can show the summary and we can find out some of the answers here. So um Tigers and Rockies first, because I have no idea who that would be. Let's read some of these names down here. Talk a little bit louder. Because remember it's a podcast, okay. don't mumble. Mm-hmm. Um Billy Blair. Know his name. But Nelson Cruz. Nelson Cruz. He's a good guest, too, because you can find him anywhere. Jose Iglesias. Jose Iglesias. Gabe Kapler, former Gabe Phillies Kapler. manager. Gabe Kapler. I knew he played. I should have known he played for the Giants. Jair Hurens, the guy whose name is. Jared Jurens. Jared Jurens, right. His name is so hard to pronounce. Um, you got Jose Mesa on here, Phillies, uh, former Phillies closer. Matt Noakes on there. Jose Mesa. He was a closer. Was I a just said player. him. That's what I just said. I just said really? Jose Mesa. Yeah, really just just okay. a second. Okay. Former Phillies closer. Yeah. Um, but there's not a lot of household names on here, no. so it's no wonder we Jose didn't. Jose Urena. Is that? Yeah. Me? I, I there's no way we. That was a tough one. Yeah, I never would have guessed anyway. So let's uh, look for Tigers and Padres, which we also didn't get. Um, there's more options here uh, for Tigers and Padres. Yeah. Not many names though. Willie Blair again. Tony Clark. Uh, former 80s slugger Rob Deere is on here. Tony Clark, yeah. You, you said that a second ago. I did. Edwin Jackson. Edwin Jackson's a good name because he has Jackson. played for everyone, too. Oh, John too. Flaherty. You know John Flaherty? Yeah, I know John Flaherty. How do you know who John Flaherty is? He's in a... He's, he, I have his card, and he's in a book I have called Best by Number. It shows you a bunch of teams and how he went from different numbers. It's a cool okay. book for these kind of things. All right. Fred Lynn on here. Cameron Mabin. Uh, Lance McCullers. Lance McCullers. Never so, would have guessed Phil him. Phil Nevin. Keith Moreland. Know him. Yep. Phil Nevin. Joe Necro. Joe mm. Necro. Gary Sheffield. That's probably the biggest name. Yeah. I'll bet you any. Oh, Johnny Padres. Johnny Padres. Up there. Mm-hmm. Biff Roberts. A lot of guys that we... Might... Justin Upton. Yeah. All right. So, Randy Wolf, Former Philly great. Randy Wolf. Also played for both the Tigers and the Padres. I would never have guessed Randy Wolf played for both of those teams. And then the other one we needed was the Giants and the Padres. Um, there's just so many different guys here. Rich Aurelia. Matty Alou, brother of... Um, mm-hmm. Moises. Uh, Joe Clark. No, his... Uh, Joe Carter, I mean. Sorry, not Joe Moises Clark. Joe dad. Carter. Uh, Joe Carter. Jack Clark. Know him. Rob Deere's on this one again. Steve Finley. Jeff Francoeur. Rich Gossage. Goose Gossage should have been Goose the one we got. Goose Gossage, yeah. He's, a good, he's always a good guess. He was with everybody. Chris James, former Philly. Chris James on the list here. Brian Johnson. Former, he was a great player for the A's. Willie McCovey. <laughs> yep. Like you said, you were like right. Like I said, I wanted to save him, but he wasn't there. Kevin Mitchell, who won an MVP with the Giants. Kevin played, Mitchell. Played yeah. for the Padres as well. I didn't realize that. Jake Peavy. Gaylord Perry. Gaylord Perry. That's oh, That was a good one. We should have guessed Gaylord Perry. Uh, Benito Santiago. Benito Santiago, yeah. Elias Sosa, I've heard of him. He's like, he was like, no idea where that was. Yeah. Well, that's the Immaculate uh, Grid for today. We did not do nearly as well as we normally do, but uh, we will get back at it tomorrow and try and do it again, won't we? Yes, absolutely. Look at that. Matt Holliday did play for the A's and Rockies. I would have gotten that one right, but we get, we ended up getting no, that, one anyway. that one anyway. And Ricky Henderson and was A's and Padres. CJ Crone should have got CJ Crone. Oh, how did we not get Chris Bryant? We, oh, we got that one. So it's the one. It's the ones, the Giants and Rockies, and then the Tigers guys we missed. CJ Crone was the most guest answer for for Tigers Rockies. Justin Upton for Tigers Padres, and Jake Peavy for Giants and Padres. So we did the best we could. Yes, we did. We'll do it again tomorrow, right? Absolutely. All right, that's pretty fun. So if you haven't done it yet, uh, go to immaculategrid.com and and have some fun being a nerd. All right, time now for your stat of the week, and this comes via Scott Lauber, who noted his favorite 2023 All-Star Nugget. Craig Kimbrell was a, is a nine-time All-Star. Here are some other pitchers 
to make at least nine All-Stars. Warren Spahn, Mariano Rivera, Tom Seaver, Roger Clemens, Steve Carlton, Whitey Ford, Tom Glavin, Randy Johnson, Juan Marshall, Jim Bunning, Don Drysdale, Bob Gibson, Goose Gossage, Earl Hubble, Clayton Kershaw, Justin Verlander, and Early Wynn. Uh, Craig Kimbrell's going to the Hall of Fame, y'all. I think we already knew that. Uh, but just some of the company that he's keeping as a nine-time All-Star pitcher is pretty unbelievable. All right, everybody, that's going to do it for this edition of Hitting Season. My thanks once again to Jake Starr for coming on the podcast, talking prospects with us. I want to remind you to check out the uh, Hitting Season Patreon. That's where you can find The Dirty Inning and Absolutely Hammered and a bunch of other fun stuff that we do there, our baseball movie reviews that Justin and Liz do. You can get there by going to patreon.com slash hitting season. And want to encourage you to make billypen.com slash hitting season your homepage, just bookmark us, but that's our landing page for the Hit and Season podcast with our good pals over at Billy Penn. Nobody covers this city better than BillyPenn.com. And I want to encourage you on your podcast app, by the way, to uh, do a little search for WHYY podcast. Uh, WHYY is doing a lot of really good stuff in the podcast field. Bringing us aboard, of course, was a very smart move, but they've been doing really great stuff with podcasts for, for quite a little while. So uh, just take a look at some of the podcasts, WHYY, and I would, again, recommend Sierra. You've heard me talk about that um that was a spellbinding podcast you're definitely going to want to listen to and the statue i thought was really good as well but uh hidden season billypen.com slash hidden season is our landing page over at billypen.com thanks everybody for listening and tuning in we'll talk to you next time right here on hidden season